or start. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, I think, I think nearly everyone does, but just in case you don't, my name is Mick. I'm part of the wider leadership team here. And this morning, we are going to look at praying together. Um, I think the best way to do that is for me to open us in prayer. Yeah, Father, thank you that we can come together this morning, that we can hear from your word. Father, I pray that you will uh, use my words this morning, Father, that you will speak through me, that your spirit will be with me. Anything that is from you, I pray you'll root deeply in this community's heart this morning. Anything that is not of you, I pray you'll cast it aside. And I pray, Father, that this morning we will learn a little bit more about what you say about praying together. Amen. Amen. So Bob introduced this as our first uh, sermon in our series on prayer. For me, it's not so much the first sermon in our series of prayer as a continuation of our series on family into prayer. Uh, praying together is a family thing. Uh, it's what we should all be doing uh, together. So I'm going to start this morning by reading a short passage from this book. Now, if you are a member of Beacon Church, hopefully you have got a copy. If you haven't got a copy, grab a leader at the end and they will uh, put one in your hands. Kay is pointing at the table. They are on the table. Uh, and I'm sure we've got a couple of spare if you're a, not a member but would like to read it. Um, I'm sure we can uh, help you out with that as well. But this book is called The Prayers of Many, which seems pretty suitable for a sermon on uh, praying together. It's written by Mike Betts, who is the apostolic leader um, for relational mission. This and he is uh, the one that oversees the family of churches that Beacon Church uh, belongs to. Uh, relational mission are the ones that instigated the Enough Prayer Nights that uh, Bob told you about, this, which we have on the 20th of March here. Um, and this book is a little bit of an insight into what inspired Mike to start those evenings. Um, but I'm going to start right at the beginning in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 is called A Call for a Revolution in Corporate Prayer. Uh, but the bit I'm going to read doesn't really get too much into the revolution part of things. Um, but it was a bit of a gut punch for me when I read it. Um, so I thought I'd punch you all in the gut to start. Because uh, what better way to welcome everyone into the family than giving you a good punch. We live in an instant age. We are constantly connected and instantly updated. If my phone doesn't start an app in just a few seconds, I wonder what's going on. We don't like waiting because we're busy people, after all. Change, especially in other people, should happen quickly, and so on and so on. The Western world is not a very patient place. So when I use the word revolution, it can too easily conjure up the brief of something that is happening very quickly. Yet even a brief, and after all, that may be all we have time for, look at the history books, should tell us that revolutions happen, not over happen over years, not days, and certainly not hours, minutes, or seconds. 
The French Revolution of the 18th century took 12 years. The American Revolution lasted 18. The Industrial Revolution was as long as 80 years. Revolution that brings about a lasting and significant change can take years of investment and sacrifice. All of which must seem quite a dramatic start for a book about prayer, but I am convinced that when it comes to corporate prayer, the act of the church praying together, what we need is for nothing short of a revolution. There are many great books on prayer from many great heroes of the faith. However, most of them have their focus on the individual and often have in mind the individual praying alone. Not much has been written about corporate prayer, although I think that is starting to change. And yet, when it comes to prayer, the Bible has much to say about praying together. In 2013, I was listening to Pete Gregg speak to a group of leaders I had gathered together. Pete is one of those guys I just mentioned, a hero of the faith who has written several great books on prayer. But Pete also knows a thing or two about corporate prayer. He has, after all, started a genuine movement known as 24-7 Prayer that has been going for over 20 years now. As Pete was talking, he said, Corporate worship in church life has been changed beyond recognition in the past 30 years through much energy and creativity. Imagine what corporate prayer in church life would look like now if the same attention had been given to that. I was so impacted by this statement, I could not stop thinking about it. I still haven't. So much so that I decided that as far as it depended on me, I would try to become part of the solution and not remain part of the problem. I was a worship leader in my early days as a leader, and I can recall the dramatic and exciting exploration of corporate worship. It fueled my imagination that such a journey with corporate prayer might be possible. Not only do we live in an impatient age, we live in an individual age. Individualism is a cultural preference where the de desires of an individual are favored over the collective needs. It pushes people towards self-reliance and independence. This affects people's spiritual growth, and so we see much focus on self-help, self-improvement, and personal development. This is as true inside the church as outside of it. For all the good it may do, it's not without its blind spots, weaknesses, and dangers. On paying closer attention to the teaching of the New Testament, including those parts concerning prayer, we see that it has a corporate context in mind. If you, are more, if you more easily think, how does this apply to me, and not, how does this apply to us, then you are thinking individually, not corporately. If that happens a lot, then we are in danger of losing vital aspects of biblical practice surrounding prayer. We need to strengthen our ideas about the very identity and nature of the church as the family, the people, the temple, the nation of God. The Bible anticipates that most of our Christian life will inevitably be worked out and filled out in a corporate context. With this in mind, mature corporate prayer, specifically in the life of God's people, becomes something to prize and pursue. Now, I realize that's a long passage to read out at the start of a sermon. But Mike's words I couldn't put in a different way, so I thought it was best just to use his words. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I couldn't help feel challenged by what Mike wrote there. Let me read one line again. 
if you more easily think, how does this apply to me, and not, how does this apply to us, then you are thinking individually, not corporately. This morning, I'm going to try and help us to recast our vision, looking at the passages, passages in the Bible that talk about prayer, not looking as a, how does this impact us, impact me, but how does that impact us? I'm going to have a look at some passages and see who it was written to at the time and how we might read those passages in the context of reading it from a perspective of us rather than me. It would be remiss of me not to read uh, a certain passage from uh, Matthew when talking about prayer. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you or a uh, mobile device with a Bible app or some other form of device that allows you to get the Bible on it, uh, if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, uh, and we're going to read from verse 5 which I'm sure you'll all be deeply shocked to have heard. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Oh, Siri's talking to me again. If you've been part of the Beacon Church for a number of years or another New Frontiers church, you have probably heard those last two verses uh, used when talking about growing your personal prayer life. You've probably heard at least once the story about Susanna Wesley, who is a woman who had 19 children, uh, and she still found time to pray. And the way that she did that was she would sit in the kitchen and she would put an apron over her head. And that meant that her family knew that she was praying. And that was how she made sure that she prayed in her life amongst 19 children. And quite frankly, if my children paid attention to me putting an apron over my head, I, I, I'd have my apron over my head every morning. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it worked for her. They knew that she was spending time with her Father God in prayer. Now, don't get me wrong, this story and this passage are a fantastic encouragement for us to pray as individuals. And this morning, I'm not saying don't pray individually. I'm definitely not saying that, so please do not mishear me. But what I am wanting to challenge is, what was, that, what was Jesus talking about? What situation was he talking about when he told us that story? I mean, after all, Jesus spent time regularly going off on his own and praying and spending time with Father God. We can't ignore uh, that praying together, praying alone, is something that we should do. 
And we're even encouraged that uh, in that part about the Gentiles heaping up empty phrases, it's not about our words, it's about our, where our heart is coming from. It's not the long phrases, the flowery phrases, it's where our heart is praying from. There's no status and results from the words if our hearts aren't there. But the context of this passage was not just about individual prayer. Jesus was speaking into uh, the way that people were praying together in the synagogues and out on the streets. It was common in Jewish society to pray together three times a day. They said public prayer out loud at the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. For those of you whose watches are not set by the times uh, 2,000 years ago, that's approximately 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 a.m. Three times a day, they came together to pray. Just as an aside, where we're there on the three times a day, how many people get to the end of a day and realize that they haven't prayed at all? I'm going to put my hand up. I'm not going to make you put your hand up, but... I suspect that a number of us sometimes get distracted by what's going on in the busyness of the world and we don't pray. And even if we do, it might be a quick sentence here or there. So something I've done to help me is my watch vibrates if I set an alarm on it. So I've set my watch to vibrate at 12 o'clock every day. And whatever I'm doing, I try and just run through the Lord's Prayer in my head just to give me that connection and to build a habit to come to God during the day. Reading that, I think I might also have to set an alarm for 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. People are going to wonder in meetings why I stop talking when my wrist starts buzzing. But that was the culture that Jesus was speaking that into. He was speaking into a culture where people were regularly praying together. If we go back into the Old Testament, we can have a look in the book of Daniel And we see this culture in practice. In Daniel chapter 6, it says he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He wasn't doing it because of the situation he was in. He was continuing something that he had been doing in his cultural setting. Now that sounds like Daniel praying on his own. But facing death with his friends because the king had decreed that all wise men should be killed because they couldn't interpret his dream, Daniel gathers with his companions. And in Daniel chapter 2, he says, it says that he gathers them together to pray and to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, if someone's coming at me wanting to kill me, probably the first thing on my mind is going to be to run, not to pray. But Daniel's first reaction is to get together and pray. This might sound familiar to those of you who heard me speak on uh, Challenging Times uh, last year. In Esther, again, we see that gathering the people together uh, is something that's done in in a time of challenge. Uh, So Esther, it says in verse 15 of uh, chapter 4 of Esther, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found on Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
Now, you notice it doesn't say the word pray in there, but throughout the Bible, fasting and prayer seems to come together, and I think it's going to be a safe assumption that if they were fasting, they were probably praying. Now, just remember, Daniel and Esther weren't surrounded by a church community. They didn't have church leaders drawing them together every week. Daniel had been taken out of his home of Israel, taken away to the king's land. Esther had been married to the king and taken away from her people. They knew from their relationship with God and from their culture that they needed to come together to regularly pray. This habit of praying together at regular times during the day seems to be something that carried on in the early church. In Acts, we discover that the 120 gathered together and were praying at Pentecost. In fact, they did so at the third hour of the day. Later we read, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That was in Acts 3. So it seems to me that they were regularly praying together. They were continuing that Jewish uh, tradition of regularly praying together. Seeing as we've landed there, let's have a quick look at the temple. God calls his house a house of prayer. God's house is the place where we find God's presence. In the Old Testament, that was God, that's God's house was the temple. That was not an English sentence. God's house was the temple. There we go. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, it says, These I will bring to my holy mountain, and I make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Uh, When Solomon dedicated that first temple, he gave some examples of what to pray in the temple. That's in 2 Chronicles. Jesus again refers to the temple as a house of prayer in the New Testament too. In Mark chapter 11, verse 17, it says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Why is that significant? Why am I talking about the temple now? The nave of Solomon's temple was about the size of the swimming pool at Heron's Leisure Centre in the centre of Herne Bay. Broadly speaking, depending on how long your arm was. uh, That's quite large. The nave where where it was for everyone to come was the size of that swimming pool. You don't build something that size for one person to go into. They came together into that space and they were drawn together to come and pray. So let's go back to that passage that we were reading again. And let's see where it continues. So we got to the end of verse 8, so I'm going to continue from verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That makes sense. Jesus has given us a couple of don'ts or ways to adapt our behavior, and then he's gone, okay, this is how we're going to pray. 
when I'm struggling to pray, I often return to the Lord's Prayer as a way to structure my prayers. It helps me to make sure that I focus on God first before I come to the long list of things I'd like him to help me with in that week and all the things that I've done wrong during the week that I want to say sorry. By coming back to the Lord's Prayer, it helps me to go first to Jesus, to God, to the Lord, and to remember that he is above all. But let's look at the language that Jesus used, remembering that the culture that he was speaking into was of praying together. It's nothing like your iPad going nuts just as you get there. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also are forgiven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This isn't an individual prayer, although we can pray it on our own. This is a corporate prayer that we should be praying together. In fact, the early church continued the practice of regularly praying together. In the book of Acts, there's 20 specific mentions of the early church praying together. That's not including all the implicit mentions that you can infer from the different ways that they're talking. There's 20. Right at the beginning, all of them have devoted themselves to praying together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and the brothers. It's for everyone. They all devoted to prayer. They prayed at the selection of Judas' replacement after Pentecost uh, with the spiritual life and the new believers at shared meals at set times in the temple for boldness when faced with the threat of persecution as special priority of the apostles. For the spirit with the church at Samaria in the middle of the night for Peter when he was imprisoned, when they sent Barnabas and Saul, when they appointed some elders for the church and committing them to the Lord, when they sent Paul and Silas through Syria, on the Sabbath with the devout women of Philippi, again in a place of prayer in Philippi, in the prison in Philippi, with the Ephesian elders as Paul departs for Jerusalem, with the disciples and their wives and children for Paul as he sets sail for Jerusalem, with thanksgiving for food on board the ship. Now, I can relate to that one. And it continues and it continues. Constantly, they're praying together. Steve, last week, talked about uh, the fact that we have the gentle plod through faith, that we look at Acts and we get all excited because... We see these miracles and the church growing in a way, but actually that it can take time. But they were coming together and praying regularly. In those times, there might have been some large gaps between those times, but in those times, they were praying together. So, does that mean I'm telling you all that uh, God's blessing comes the more people we have gathered together to pray? No. No, I am not. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a very famous Christian who wrote quite a lot of books, some of them are easier to read than others, uh, called it a mathematical notion of prayer. The idea that people uh, might think that repetition, length of prayer, the effort of the person praying, the number of people praying, 
would change the answer that they got from God on prayer. That's not true. That misses the Father's love for us. The Father loves us whether there's one of us praying or whether there's thousands of us praying. And let's look at a couple of examples very quickly. Abraham prayed on his own for Sodom. What happened there? Moses for Israel. These people were praying on their own. Elijah thought he was the only one praying for rain and for not rain as well. Let's turn those the other way around. Prayer is us coming together and humbling ourselves. Uh, Later on in 2 Chronicles, uh, in verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and in my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, I don't know about you, but nothing humbles me more than coming together and praying with some of the great prayers in this church. When I hear Fred pray from his years of experience, it humbles me. When I hear David pray, when I hear Joe pray, when I hear Margaret pray, when I hear lots of people who've been brothers and sisters in faith for a long time, it humbles me. I think, my goodness, I can't do this on my own. I need the Lord. When I play my violin at home, I can convince myself that I am the best violinist in the world. Nigel Kennedy has nothing on me. Vanessa May, you know, throw a piece of music at me, it's going to be amazing. Quite frankly, I don't know why I haven't been signed a great record deal to record me playing. On Thursday night, I go to the University of Kent Symphony Orchestra to join with them, and I suddenly realize that perhaps I'm not the best violinist in the world. I am surrounded on those Thursday evenings by some excellent violinists, some people far better than me, partly because they spent far more t- much time practicing than I have, But that humbles me. If I didn't go to orchestra, I'd think I was great. By going to orchestra, don't get me wrong, I enjoy playing. I know that I have a gift and a skill. I'm not saying that I'm rubbish at playing the violin. But I go along to the orchestra and I feel humbled by that because I'm together with people. Praying together, the benefit is the agreement and the fellowship. In Matthew chapter 18, it says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three gathered in my name, there I am among you. It aligns us as a church. It unites us. Ephesians tells us that we should seek unity in the Spirit. And the best way to do that is for us to come together. We are interconnected as the vines, the branches of the vine with Jesus as the body of church. Is that me? I think my battery's going. Maybe in the microphone too. Is it that? I'll keep going and uh, Adrian will press some buttons until I stop buzzing. It develops relationship. We've had a few, uh, a couple of talks over the last couple of years on discipleship. If you want to learn how to pray, the best way is to surround yourself with people who are praying. 
there are some fantastic, I've already said, there are some fantastic prayers in this church. There are some fantastic people who've seen miraculous answers to prayer. I want to learn from them, and the only way I'm going to do that is to be with them, to learn from them, to hear them pray. We need to be immersed. It's, ne- it's a necessity to come together and be immersed. It requires a selflessness. When I come to the prayer meeting on the last Sunday of every month, I have to give up at the door all those things that are on my mind and focus my mind on, this, on the church and what, as a church, we are praying. I'm not there to pray about my things. I'm there to pray about what we as a church are praying to align my heart and my spirit with what Jesus is saying to the church and what, what we should be praying for. If you thought that passage from Mike uh, was challenging, Donald S. Whitney writes in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, 24 years ago, there are many who are quick to ask for prayer from people in the church and who will even pray for others in return, but who will not commit themselves to pray with those same brothers and sisters. I'll tell you what, that hit me hard. How many times have I said, yes, I'll pray for you this week? How many times have I said, can you pray for me this week? How many times have I prayed with those people? But I need help if I'm going to get better at that because I need those people to be with me, to pray with me. I need my family to gather around so that I can pray with you. One Thessalonians ends with some instructions, and one of those instructions is to pray without ceasing. Now, I've already talked about the culture that uh, a lot of these uh, instructions about prayer were speaking into, but let me read the opening part of One Thessalonians. Paul, Savanius, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. (laughs) Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Did you get that in amongst my stumbling? To the church. That book was written to the church. Pray without ceasing was a message to the church. So let's hear that instruction today. Let's pray together in our growth groups. Let's pray together when we meet up. Let's pray with our spouses, with our family Let's call each other up and pray. If you don't think your prayers matter, if you don't think it's important to come and gather around, let's just remember where they're going. Revelation chapter 8 says, Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all, the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of angel. For any avoidance of doubt, if you recognize the Lord Jesus as your Savior, the Lord Jesus who died on the cross and rose again on the third day, you are one of those saints. As we finish, let me read this from John Piper. Again, sometimes other people have better words than I do, and I'm not going (laughs) to thrash about trying to rephrase them. This is what he says about that passage in Revelation. 
The utterly astonishing thing about this text is that it portrays the prayers of the saints as the instrument God uses to usher in the end of the world with great divine judgments. It pictures the prayers of the saints accumulating on the altar before the throne of God until the appointed time when they are taken up like fire from the altar and thrown upon the earth to bring about the consummation of God's kingdom. In other words, what we have in this text is an explanation of what has happened to the millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years as the saints have cried out again and again, Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Not one of those prayers prayed in faith has been ignored. Not one is lost or forgotten. Not one has been ineffectual or pointless. They have all been gathering on the altar before the throne of God. On the last Sunday of every month at six o'clock when you're feeling tired and your mind is on the week ahead, when you think, I won't be missed, it doesn't matter if I don't go, my prayers aren't important. Remember this passage. On Friday the 20th of March, when we're in this room gathered here for our enough prayer evening, praying with our wider church, remember that those prayers are going on the throne, on the altar. Everyone matters. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I'm really not. I say this as someone who didn't go to prayer and vision last week because I had a really bad cold. I was completely wiped out. I'm still recovering now. Don't mishear me. But let's make our default to go to the prayer meeting. Let's make our default to go to growth group. Let's make the default to pray with our spouses, to pray with our Christian friends, to pray when we phone each other. There are going to be times in life when circumstances mean that you can't get to some of these events. For some of you, it might be difficult to get out on a Sunday evening to prayer and vision. A Friday evening might be something that you are not able to do. But if our default is to pray together, maybe instead you'll gather with your friends on a different time and pray together with them. Maybe if you can't come to prayer and vision on a Sunday evening, maybe you can join the group that pray together at 8.30 on a Saturday morning each week. Next time Bob and I meet up for a coffee, I'm going to set an alarm. We can keep talking for days. And then we need to go, particularly if we're meeting for breakfast before I go to work, and then suddenly I realize I've got to go to a meeting and we haven't prayed. So I'm going to set an alarm next time we meet so that it goes off again, my wrist is going to vibrate, to make sure that we pray. I'm going to stop whatever we're talking about, and I'm going to make sure we pray. Let's make it a priority. Let's make it our default. Don't feel guilty if you're ill. Don't feel guilty if you are physically not able to get somewhere. Don't feel guilty if it's been the worst week and you just need to curl up under the desk and have a little sleep. I don't want you to feel guilty But I do want you to just think, first, I am going to the prayer meeting. Let that be your default. I'm going to come to enough. Let that be your default. I'm going to go to growth group this week. Let that be your default. I'm going to ask Stephen to come back up now. But sometimes, 
Uh, praying out loud in a big situation can be scary. Some of you might not have done it before. Some of you might not do it regularly. It's scary, don't get me wrong. But this morning, we're going to pray together, and we're all going to pray together. No one's going to laugh at you. If you've got a prayer this morning that you want to shout out, if that's simply, I love you, God, let's do that this morning. Let's, come, let's join together in prayer so that we can amen those prayers together as a family. But right now, to save anyone any embarrassment and to help us all, if you could all just join with me and stand up, and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.